creative people should be required to leave California for three months every year. Gloria Swanson Chapter 24 In the words of Dorothy Gale, there's no place like home. The light here is what made filmmakers move to California. It shines here most of the time. And there are certain places, certain times of year, that take your breath away with sheer wonder. It's a crying shame that with generations of talent based here, so much production is going elsewhere. And I went with it. The migration had to do with tax incentives in some places and preposterous salaries in others. I think it's time I told you about when I went on location in Mongolia. The average film worker there makes $40 a day, and that's considered generous. The Chinese studios pay their workers even less in some categories and compensate by housing them in army-like barracks and feeding them extremely meager meals, while the owners of the studios shelter money offshore and live like royalty. Right now, I'm looking at a picture of Myrna Loy, who grew up in Los Angeles, studied dancing under Natasha Rambova, who was the wife of Rudolph Valentino, played Nora in the Nick and Nora movies, and was a solid good egg. Lena Horne said of her, a great star and a woman of accomplishment who is angry about all the right things. I find that inspiring. In the publicity shot in my hand, she's portraying an Asian princess. The studios had strange casting practices in the 1930s. The only Chinese-American actress of the time who became a star was Anna Mae Wong. She often traveled to Europe to get decent roles and wasn't even considered in Hollywood for the lead in the Oscar-winning story of Chinese farmers, The Good Earth, released in 1937. The role went instead to the incandescent Louise Rayner. But still. Back to Ms. Loy and the publicity still. Glamorous? I can't think of an instance in which she wasn't. And that may have had to do more with her convictions and character than anything else. Was she comfortable? Well, let's see. Her eyes were taped. She had a 20-pound headdress on. She probably spent about four hours in makeup, and her heavily brocaded and sparkling gown looks terribly itchy. So, in answer to my own question, she probably was nowhere near comfortable. And I haven't even mentioned the blistering hot kilowatts that created that oh-so-special aura that she endured to fulfill her part. That image of Ms. Loy always makes me want to peel away a few of the million layers of filmmaking illusion. So, I was in Mongolia with a splinter crew and hundreds of local extras. They were tribesmen of the steppes, very welcoming, warm people, and very earthy in a way that didn't involve deodorant. Everyone chain-smoked. Mornings would usually involve a group of mesmerizing horsemen, extras, standing in a big circle smoking, hawking, and spitting up phlegmy globs, I called oysters, into the frosty grassland. For some reason, one morning, I came around the corner from base camp and saw a 10-foot diameter fairy ring of oysters quivering on the ground. I don't know why that particular morning it got to me. Maybe it was the breakfast I just finished. I broke into a sweat under my parka, doubled over, and threw up. A Chinese prop man with an Australian accent came up as I wobbled on my feet and wiped my mouth. He handed me a bottle of water, 
rested a steadying hand on my shoulder and said, settle, pedal, let's get you out of here. In China, one had to come to grips with a courteous and refined system of studio graft. The economy of the workers' barracks giving rise to some studio owners' multiple homes, which they did not live in, but that did provide shelter for their teenagers, accompanied by a cook and a chaperone, while the children attended American High School in a sleepy suburb of Los Angeles called San Marino. Or, as a jovial entrepreneur explained to me in chiding amusement, Miss Taylor, you do everything up here. He waved his hand above the tabletop that separated us. That is not the way here. Here, his hand was under the table. It goes so much more quickly. And quickly is better for movies, surely. When I had traveled to the newly opened ex-United Soviet Socialist Republic years earlier to check in on a costume drama, it wasn't so refined. It was, it was scary, like dealing with the kingpins of organized crime. What the crew faced. Someone remarked it was like the Wild West, but it was way beyond. I arrived immediately after our production designer had been drugged, stripped, rolled on a train for his wallet, and left for dead in a baggage car. I witnessed mobster location managers in a bizarre assertion of dominance and fuck youitude to the American crew, copulating on the hoods of Chaikas and Bentleys on the last night of filming in front of the elaborate aqua and icy white winter palace. Lodged in a hotel in glorious St. Petersburg, I was pulled aside by my translator and told always to peek into the bar before proceeding into the restaurant. No, not to spot fellow filmmakers and friends, but to make sure there was a full contingent of prostitutes seated. Canaries in a coal mine, for when they were absent, the restaurant was known to be strafed by machine gun fire. And nobody wants to die headfirst in a middling plate of continental fare. Nobody, least of all me. At the time, Vladimir Putin was working in St. Petersburg at the mayor's office. He had something to do with foreign relations and investments. I never met him. I just mention it because he's come to figure so heavily in world events and American politics via his handling of the world's most powerful incompetent. And if you've been listening along, you know exactly whom I'm referring to. As of the end of June, Russians and Americans are banned from traveling to newly opened Europe because the Kremlin and White House response to the pandemic has been a non-response, a cover-up, a nationwide failure. Hmm, funny that. And I don't mean it's funny that there are we're not welcome in Europe. I mean, it's funny that the response is so similar and so criminally negligent. Back to the film business. Here's the deal. Making movies is arduous, and the patina of glamour is hard one. Sometimes it's dangerous. Sometimes it reveals traits that reflect badly on humanity. For example... Where but in America do smoke and mirrors triumph so boldly over substance? Mm. Take the perplexing rise of a bankrupt wannabe billionaire, wholly owned by his creditors, who profited on bigotry all the way to the presidency. I experienced in China 
a universal surveillance amidst an extensive shadow system workaround based on personal contacts. In Russia, they use brutal disruption, a docile, bought-off judiciary, and disinformation, mob tactics, to intimidate underlings and keep them in line. The stuff that dreams are made of? Not exactly. Not by a long shot. To be effective and ethical as a head film honcho, you have to look at the systems in place and adapt. You have to play nicely with others in order for production to go smoothly. You'll notice I keep intertwining film events with current events. It's how I process. I will also tell you this. When someone asked after the election of 2016 what I thought of the man who had taken the presidency, I replied with something so Sicilian I will not record it for posterity. But I will tell you, it was bad. Because I knew, and so did every Republican leader who enabled him, the president never, in his life, played nicely at all. Oh, he appeared to be nice when it would serve his interests. I've met him on set when he appeared in a film cameo. He always played the equivalent of Richie Rich. My immediate impression was that he was a glad-handing fake. I've met a lot of them. Yet this one was so particular. At the time, I just thought, toothy fool. Sadly, now we've all been living through the results of his atrocious-turned-deadly behavior. As of today, the coronavirus has claimed 128,565 American lives. Through it all, there's a common denominator. You could say it's the chief executive's guiding principle. Personal gain. How much money is in it for him? He dissolved the government's pandemic prediction working group after they had modeled an outbreak eerily similar to the one we're experiencing. Why? Because it didn't pay. I assume he removed the CDC and medical predict monitors in China for the same reason. Or perhaps it was on the advice of his favorite dictator, once foreign relations expert, for the mayor's office who provides him with financial backing, not to mention military-grade hacking in election matters. I don't have knowledge of the particulars. I can only look at the patterns and make an educated guess. When the intelligence out of China indicated there was something terribly the matter, a simple personal phone call to the Chinese leader, a matter of course for previous presidents, could have gotten the CDC back into Wuhan. It was not to be. Remember, nice doesn't enter into his reality. Only money does. If you really want to go down a rabbit hole, look into, look into how the Genovese crime family in New York was taken over by the Russian mafia and how that affected the finances of a family of Manhattan real estate developers. Okay, enough venting. I thought working on this memoir during the pandemic would keep me focused. It has, but not in the ways I expected. Now we'll travel back to our Hollywood past and chapter 25. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.